Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Pennsylvania's primary election is scheduled for next Tuesday, a week from today. Throughout this week, we'll be talking with the three Democrats running for the U.S. Senate. The winner faces incumbent Republican Pat Toomey in November. First up today is Katie McGinney, the former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection and the chair of the White House Office on Environmental Quality during the Clinton administration. Secretary McGinty, welcome to the program. Hey, Scott. Great to hear you. Thanks for having me on. WITF's Election 26 coverage is supported by the Harrisburg Law Office of Saul Ewing, LLP. Secretary McGinney, there are a series of questions I ask of all the candidates right up front, or at least the the three U.S. Senate candidates. So we'll get into those before we get into some specific issues. But one of the biggest is uh, and broadest is why are you running for the U.S. Senate? Well, Scott, you know, I uh, come from a Big family, grew up in northeast Philly, uh, and my dad, as you might remember from our early conversation, was a Philadelphia police officer, 10 kids in the family. Uh, my mom would go to work at night as a uh, hostess in a restaurant. And so in those days, uh, my parents could provide for all 10 of us kids and look us in the eye and, and let us know whatever we wanted to do. If we worked hard, we could get there. But what I see is that incredibly important promise of this country that if you work hard, you get ahead, has really been slipping away for too many families. And I think that's not only an economic issue and obviously a moral issue in terms of our children and their future, uh, but it's a security issue in terms of the strength of this country. Uh, And so I'm throwing in in this race to give it my all to rebuild that American dream, to rebuild that middle class and make it so, again, if you work hard, promise and opportunity uh, should be yours in this country. Why do you think that happened? What you just described, why do you think it's happening? Well, look, I think that there is a combination of things for sure. Uh, To name several, wages have not kept up. Uh, We have a minimum wage that has not in real time or real terms been increased in in a very long time. And at a time when, of course, expenses that families face continue to escalate, whether it's health care costs or whether it's uh, rent or whether it's education costs, those wages have not kept pace, and that's obviously a problem. But that raises another question. Um, What about good-paying jobs and what has happened there? And I think that can be a complex set of things, but certainly the trade deals that we have uh, pursued really haven't paid off for us, and in fact, I think... The opposite is what we've seen. We've seen an erosion of uh, manufacturing. We've seen a loss of markets. And with that, uh, an erosion in uh, the promises uh, available to to middle-class families. Uh, Education is another huge piece, Scott, of the equation. And as we have not invested as we should in high-quality schools, and I would also say as we have kind of turned our back uh, on things like job training and apprenticeship programs and sort of downplayed uh, skilled uh, professions and, and the skilled trades, that's hurt us. And I think we need to get back into uh, putting a spotlight on those career paths and giving people a hand to develop uh, those skills as welders or machinists, et cetera, that uh, are in demand and can provide a family-sustaining uh, wage. 
I want to talk about all those things, but uh, what I try to do when we are talking to candidates is uh, provide an opportunity for you to kind of set yourself apart. Uh, been following the the debates that you have had with your two opponents, and the next day when I read about them and I hear the the analysis, I hear well the candidates pretty much say the same thing as far as where they stand on on the issues. There are only a, a couple areas where they differ. Well, here's your opportunity. Why are you better equipped to handle the challenges facing the country than your opponents? In other words, why are you the best candidate in this democratic field? Well, Scott, I would say, first of all, that uh, you know, Congressman Sestak, I believe, certainly would better represent the people of, the, of uh, Pennsylvania than we've seen in Pat Toomey. Um, but there are clear differences. And I think, uh, you know, first, I do bring a um, perspective and experience that comes not from just being in government. I've been privileged to be in government, but, you know, I've run businesses and I've started startup businesses. And I know what that bottom line is. And I think that's a, an important common sense perspective to be able to bring to the tough challenges that the country faces. Uh, I bring the perspective of a working mom. And I'll tell you, when you look at Washington, it just seems so out of touch with the reality of families, the nonsense that goes on there when families are juggling so much. And I I think that perspective is important, that perspective of a mom and a working mom, in terms of, at the very least, cutting the nonsense out that we see in, uh, in Washington. Uh, and then I would say, too, you know, coming from a, uh, a working class, if you will, family, you know, I don't trivialize with issues that I see as really make or break for families. And, you know, I have a very significant difference with Congressman Sestak uh, on Social Security, for example, uh, the congressman has been a great champion of Simpson Bowles, which uh, would very significantly cut Social Security and Medicare. I know our family could not have handled the care for my parents, uh, God bless them, in their final years uh, without Social Security and Medicare, and I know it's true for so many families. Uh, and we also have a difference uh, on issues like the handling of Wall Street, where the congressman voted uh, to enable the uh, Wall Street banks that were being bailed out by taxpayers for their CEOs to have unlimited salaries and unlimited bonuses paid for by taxpayers. And I, I just can't uh, see that as the right set of choices or priorities. So there are some real and significant policy differences. We'll talk about them, some differences in trade as well. Uh, but I also think the pragmatic experience I bring as not only a leader in government, but a leader in business, and as an everyday working mom with kind of a no-nonsense, let's-get-it-done approach. I noticed you didn't mention John Fetterman, who also is in the race. That's right. That's right. No, there, look, there's, uh, uh, there are three candidates in the race, and I think everyone is uh, giving it their best. I know I am every single day, and it sounds like you're going to uh, have uh, the... Uh, your listeners have a shot at hearing from all three of us, and I think that's incredibly important. 
We're joined by Democratic U.S. Senate candidate Katie McGinney. We'll be talking uh, over the next three days with the Democrats running for the U.S. Senate here on Smart Talk. Secretary McGinney, uh, the country appears to be divided. You called it nonsense earlier, what's going on in Washington, and there probably are many, many people who would agree with you. Uh, on the campaign trail and on your campaign website, you cite occasions in your previous positions when you worked in a bipartisan way. However, when you were chief of staff for Governor Wolf, Republican leaders were not happy with you. In fact, there were some at the time who said that you were a part of the problem holding up a budget, uh, you know, getting a budget in place, and that you had attacked uh, Republican leadership. Uh, I just read something this morning about uh, uh, emails that uh, came, became public for freedom of information. So why then are you able to say that you're able to reach across the aisle and would do that in Washington. Yeah, Scott, listen, I um, am proud of the work that I was able to do in Harrisburg and in Washington, uh, doing just what you said, reaching across the aisle, finding common ground. Uh, and we did that actually uh, even in the uh, uh, the, the uh, seven months that I was with uh, Governor Wolf as his chief of staff. Look, we found common ground on, on tough issues like a fair uh, funding formula for uh, for our schools and an earlier version of the uh, medical marijuana legislation. We were uh, uh, helpful in bringing about dialogue and compromise on the Senate side on that key issue. Uh, but sometimes getting to a resolution also means making very clear when things are wrong uh, and things are not uh, that are that are proposed are not acceptable. Uh, I look at, for example, uh, the uh, legislation that's being pursued now in Harrisburg on uh, taking away uh, women's privacy and women's health choices. You know, sometimes you just have to say, look, that's not right. I'm not going for that. That's wrong. Uh, Similarly, uh, some of the legislation we see around the country rolling back the clock in taking away uh, uh, non-discrimination protections from the LGBT community. These are things that are a matter of principle. These are a, uh, things that are a matter of uh, trying to just be Pollyannish and not being clear about where things are unacceptable. Does not, in the end, help uh, get things done. Uh, but where where I've also uh, Scott, I'm in long track record uh, of working with Republicans, many of whom are still in leadership in uh, Harrisburg. You know, we became the first coal state when I was secretary to pass legislation requiring uh, the use of renewable energy. I couldn't do that on my own. Um, Republicans stepped up with me. We passed legislation that everyone said we couldn't get done uh, because it had been so bitterly fought for so long in updating our coal mine safety standards and, you know, rolling up sleeves and getting in there and finding the common ground. Similarly, when I was in Washington, uh, even with Newt Gingrich in charge of the uh, Congress, uh, very successful in new safe drinking water legislation, food quality protection legislation, investments in water infrastructure, uh, a very long list. But again, compromise is not capitulation, and sometimes the rough and tumble of negotiation uh, you know, shows that. But ultimately, as long as you respect the players who are involved, you can get to a decent uh, uh, result. So you're saying Newt Gingrich is easier easier to deal with than the Pennsylvania legislature? <laughs> no, I'm saying that even even with characters that uh, are pretty tough, look, I think uh, sometimes it's carrot, sometimes it's stick, 
But, uh, you know, if you go in there earnestly, uh, you know, ready to roll up your sleeves and get it done and find common ground, uh, my track record is one that says, hey, you can, you can get it done. So what is the answer then to stopping gridlock in the bickering in Washington? Well, I don't, you know, I do want to give uh, uh, credit where it's due, too, to, uh, you know, there are Republicans and Democrats that did come together on important things like in December in getting a budget agreement done. Unfortunately, there are a few who are always about trying to blow up where there has been good and meaningful compromise, and Pat Toomey is one of those guys. The idea that you'd vote against a budget deal that included critical things like middle-class tax cuts to afford college, I don't understand why a senator from Pennsylvania, where we're the third highest in the country in terms of student debt, could possibly do that and think that he is serving his constituents uh, or you know legislation that included uh, beginning to close those dangerous loopholes in the visa waiver program uh, and in, and making sure that we were uh, on the lookout for and screening uh, those who are or, or are reasonably suspected to be terrorists and Pat Toomey votes against that uh, or Planned Parenthood, my goodness, the senator was the most extreme of the extreme voices uh, to the right of Mitch McConnell uh, in wanting not only to defund Planned Parenthood but willing to shut the entire government down to do it when 104,000 of his own constituents depend on Planned Parenthood. So, look, there's a lot of legislation that has gotten done, um, you know, the budget, revising the No Child Left Behind, and as a mom with kids in public school, maybe we can talk about that because I think it's important. But Pat Toomey has been a holdout. And I think the hopeful thing here for voters who are listening is uh, with a few changes, including in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, send Katie McGinty to Washington, we can have a Senate that really is functional and functioning. Well, I, I have to say that, you know, we only have a limited amount of time, and there are a lot of things I'd like to follow up with that, but I also want to get to some issues there. You mentioned the minimum wage. Uh, you say on your website that Americans are long overdue for a pay raise advocating for raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. The federal minimum wage has not had an increase since 2007, so it's been nine years. Most polls show that Americans do support a minimum wage increase. But to double it to $15 an hour, you know the arguments against raising the minimum wage that small businesses would not be able to afford it. It would cost jobs. Doubling it to $15 an hour, and I don't know if you're talking about uh, you know, overnight or phasing this in, but that sounds like a lot of money to some people. So, Scott, I would do just what you suggested. I've been very uh, closely tracking the group of 200 economists that have been hands-on working on this, and they have very detailed analysis, uh, which is the analysis that I adopt. And that, that would have this phased in over a four- to five-year uh, trajectory. Um, and then it would do, I think, smart things like, instead of having this battle constantly, have the minimum wage track cost of living uh, and CPI uh, indices. And I think that's smart. And, and here's the economic argument that the Wall Street Journal even has just been very clear and consistent. The reason why our economic recovery has been so slow is specifically because wages have not kept pace at all. Uh, and when 70% of our economic activity is consumer purchasing power driven, 
then the way to rev the economy is to make sure if people work in, working hard, they're getting paid a decent wage, and they will go out there and help to drive that economic growth and job creation. Well, wages certainly are part of it, but uh, as you well know, I mean, this is complex, and there are a lot of factors that go into it, uh, one of it which has been that jobs have been slow to come back since the 2007-2008 uh, Great Recession because employers have been cautious, not knowing what's coming down the road, and consumers have been the same way. So, uh, you know, what if you increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, even if it is phased in? Don't you create more caution for some of those employers? Well, Scott, I think actually job growth has been impressive. It has been. Uh, We've got the longest streak of job growth, I believe, in the history of the country. Um, The problem has been that the jobs that are coming are not paying the wages of the jobs that were lost in the Great Recession. And that means, again, we need to step it up, creating more good-paying jobs and paying people a decent wage. And I I would be um, very uh, interested and strong, for example, in getting people to work in infrastructure. Uh, There, there are bipartisan ideas that I'd love to get behind where we'd bring some of that $2 trillion that's sitting in bank accounts overseas, give companies a tax break to bring those dollars back, earmark the money to put people to work. No more Flint, Michigan. Let's rip out the lead pipe, get rid of the lead paint. Let's re furbish our roads and bridges. Let's do something on transit. Uh, these are things that would be good-paying jobs uh, that would be a foundation for further robust economic growth. Higher education affordability. You talked about that earlier. How can the federal government make college more affordable and cut student debt? Sure. Well, I think a couple of things would be critically important. One is take advantage of these low interest rates that we have. Uh, and there have been proposals in Washington that would allow a refinancing of those federal student uh, uh, loans to uh, bring the interest rate uh, down as we do on our homes. We should be able to do that uh, with our uh, uh, federal student loans. There, I'd be for a proposal like that. Pat Toomey has voted uh, against those initiatives for reasons that are beyond me for sure. Uh, Another thing we can do is just bring down the interest rate period on federal student loans going forward. And boy, that that interest rate is very high at a time when uh, uh, commercial interest rates are have been uh, consistently low for a number of years now. Uh, But I think we also have to do things like maintain the uh, Pell Grant program, uh, which helps 250,000 students in Pennsylvania. Uh, And and, and another priority uh, for me, Scott, all of this effort, I would really peg to those schools that are getting their act together and bringing the cost increases down. We've just seen a uh, well beyond any other reasonable economic measure of year over year cost increases at these colleges and universities. And I, I would like to reward those that are keeping the cost in check. We are running out of time, and there are so many issues I'd like to discuss with you. But one that Senator Toomey did reach across the aisle on was uh, doing about something about guns, universal background checks. It was defeated. But we have a serious gun violence program in this country, certain areas of the country in particular, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago. What is your stance on how to reduce gun violence? Well, Scott, I'll just say, first of all, that, you know, I come from a family of uh, six brothers, all of whom were hunters 
And so that sportsman's culture, that hunting culture runs deep in my uh, family. Uh, and I think that sportsmen will step up and, and have expressed their support for things like uh, closing those loopholes in background checks. Sportsmen don't want to see criminals or those with serious mental illness uh, have their hands on lethal uh, weapons, and I would certainly uh, do that. Uh, I was disappointed, actually, in Senator Toomey refusing after San Bernardino to reintroduce his legislation, said he was basically done uh, with it, and, and then voting against other common-sense measures that I think we absolutely have to take, like closing the terror loophole that right now allows suspected terrorists in the United States. They can't get on a plane, but they can purchase weapons in our country. That doesn't make sense to me. Those are things where I would join, I think, bipartisan efforts, close those loopholes, do that very respectfully of our sportsmen's culture, but bring some relief to what, as you correctly described, has become a crisis in the loss of life uh, from gun violence. Uh, Secretary, we're almost out of time for this portion of the program. In about uh, 30 seconds or less, what message would you like to leave voters? First of all, voters, please get out and vote. This is a hugely consequential election. If you care about growing those middle-class jobs, again, if you care about affordable education, if you care about Social Security being there for you, your parents, and into the future, Katie McGinty is your candidate. And if you have faith that we can outcompete the world in clean, high-tech manufacturing and good infrastructure, I'm your candidate. Those are the priorities that I work for, and I think the future is bright as we pull together once again. Katie McGinty, thank you very much for being with us today. Scott, appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Pam Tripaldi's family, or father, I should say, received a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in 2007. Tripaldi served as her father's primary caregiver for the final four years of his life, during which she received care at several different hospitals. During these hospitalizations, she encountered near-miss patient safety events in which staff did not recognize her father's dementia. Tripaldi contacted the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority in 2015 and recounted examples of situations in which the hospital staff either obtained inaccurate accurate information from her father or failed to provide the assistance necessary to support her father in activities of daily living. The authority investigated and issued an analysis of whether health care providers not recognizing or knowing a patient they're treating has dementia. To talk about it, Michelle File, Senior Patient Safety Analyst, or Analyst, I should say, with the Pennsylvania Safety Patient Safety Authority. All right, healthcare providers, doctors not recognizing when a patient being treated for another condition or illness that they have missed Alzheimer's or dementia. How often is this occurring? Well, you know, there's been research to show that they estimate even in outpatient offices, you know, outside of the hospital, normal, um, any kind of a health checkup visit for older adults, the diagnosis can be missed almost two-thirds of the time into a up to uh, 67% of individuals. And it's not always just because of the healthcare provider um, being unaware of the signs and symptoms and not screening. It could be, you know, denial on the part of the patient and the family themselves. A lot of people don't recognize these signs of dementia. Okay, now I want to go back to that 67%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's something that I'm sure some eyebrows were raised out there when they heard that statistic. 67% of what now? 
67% of older adults, usually um, they do these studies in adults over the age of 65 to see, you know, how many people are getting the diagnosis, how many people do we think are having the diagnosis missed, because um, the prevalence of dementia rises as you get older. Um, you know, they've done studies a lot with Alzheimer's patients, and Alzheimer's is the most prevalent form of dementia. Um, there are other kinds of dementia, but Alzheimer's consists of 60 to 80 percent of the diagnoses that are out there. So for Alzheimer's patients, um, they estimate that one in every 100 patients at the age of 65 probably has a diagnosis, and it just goes up from there. So by the age of 85, um, they estimate about a third of adults age 85 and older have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and then, you know, the studies that I'm referring to are kind of observational studies or record review where they look to see, well, okay, if this is the prevalence, how many people do we think are missing the diagnosis in a typical outpatient encounter? And we should also mention that, and you do mention this in your analysis, that uh, as Pennsylvania's population is getting older, uh, that the number of patients diagnosed with dementia is expected to double within the next 19 to 20 years, correct? Correct. When you think about just the sheer number of people in that age group, you know, over age 65 and then over age 85, um, you know, the two that I mentioned, it's just because that population is growing. So the prevalence, um, they estimate, is going to stay about the same, you know, one out of every 100 adults age 65 up to one out of every three age 85 or older. But there's going to be so many more people in those age groups, that's why the number of people who receive this diagnosis is going to, you know, double, triple. It's just going to continue to grow as we successfully treat all our other medical conditions and people live longer. In your analysis, now you looked over a nine-year period, uh, 2005 to 2014. Uh, You found more than 3,700 safety events. How do you define a safety event? Well, sure. I'd like to explain. I'm a nurse. I've been a nurse for 20 years, and for the past four years, I've been working for the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. We're an agency that was created by law in Pennsylvania in 2002, and our agency exists separate from our Department of Health. Uh, We're an agency that, by law, has to receive reports of events that harm patients in Pennsylvania hospitals, birthing centers, abortion facilities. We even get infection reports from nursing homes as part of this law. So a patient safety event is defined by law as um, any event that could harm a patient. We even collect um, reports of incidents or near misses, which I know I mentioned in our article. Um, Any event that could harm a patient, either temporarily or permanently. So we receive reports for all sorts of events occurring in hospitals, from infections to falls to errors during procedures. So this is this rich database of information that we have in Pennsylvania, and um, our reporting system has been collecting these reports since 2004. So when I, um, you know, uh, heard of this concern from Pam Tripaldi, we said at the authority, let's look in our database to see, you know, what kind of events are being reported for any reason that involve patients with dementia. So it was actually 10 years of reports um, that I looked at um, and found you know, almost 4,000 reports that just mentioned that a patient with dementia was involved. And then from there, I looked more closely to see if we had anything 
similar to the concerns that Pam raised with us. So again, I'll go back to my original question. How do you define a safety event? Um, well, safety event, again, is anything that happens in the course of the clinical care of a patient that, um, you know, they weren't expecting. that Any prudent patient would not expect one of these events to occur while they were in the hospital. So it can be anything that occurs in the hospital that's uh, unexpected and that results or could has the potential to result in harm to that patient. But in these 3,700-plus cases, uh, you're talking about those that just related to those uh, patients who had dementia. Oh, sure. Yeah, when a, when a healthcare provider reports an event to us, first of all, they'll select the event type. They'll, they'll tell us ultimately what is the main thing that happened, uh, an error in a procedure, a complication, a fall, skin integrity. But... After we look at what the overall event outcome was, they, we look at the narratives, and they tell us a brief story about, you know, what exactly happened in this case. So for my analysis, um, in this case, I looked at all those stories, those little narratives, to see who said these things were happening to patients with dementia. Um, that's the only way we could find these events, is by searching these stories for the word dementia or Alzheimer or confused. Um, and that's how I located almost 4,000 reports for any sorts of events happening for patients with dementia. Now, the analysis also concluded that there were 63 near misses. What's a near miss? Well, a near miss would be in that category of an event that had the potential to harm a patient but didn't actually result in any patient harm. So, uh, you know, there are reporting systems in other states. Um, I'll use Minnesota as an example. Um, where they only require the reporting of the events that harm patients. But in Pennsylvania, the MCARE law, that's the Medical Care Availability and Reduction of Error Act of 2002, our law says that we also want to hear about those near misses, those incidents, those events that could harm patients but don't necessarily result in harm because we believe that we can learn a lot from those events as well. And that's exactly what um, we've been trying to do now for you know, what, what is it? It's a, almost 15 years, over 15 years. So those 10 years, were there any patients who were harmed because uh, a health care provider didn't identify the patient had been diagnosed with dementia? Well, in our reporting system, no. And, um, you know, we, we do know patient safety professionals recognize that there's a limit to what we can learn from patient safety event reporting. So just because we didn't find an event showing that, you know, harm resulted as one of these encounters where they missed the diagnosis, it doesn't mean that it, it didn't happen. Um, so we're limited by the information that gets reported to the system. So um, what we were able to find were 63 events similar to what Pam described, and, and that's um, situations in which healthcare professionals obviously didn't recognize the patient had dementia. So maybe in, in, in the report, you do list several examples. What are some examples of some near misses or uh, some of these uh, safety events? Well, you know, the most concerning ones, in my opinion, are... Um, the events that describe that a patient clearly has cognitive impairment, they have dementia, and they're in the hospital, and someone has asked them to consent for a procedure, an invasive procedure or a surgical procedure, 
and they're about to proceed with the procedure when someone, you know, stops the line and says, whoa, you know, should we have asked this person to consent for this? I'm not sure that they really are able to. Don't they have dementia? I think they maybe, maybe they do. So it's unclear, but, you know, members of the team have proceeded um, and asked that person to provide consent when it wasn't obvious that they really could. Now, in some situations, patients with dementia can provide consent or assent, um, but when the stakes are high, when you have a procedure that's invasive, um, any kind of operative procedure, you have to have a higher standard that you hold yourself to when you're assessing whether the patient has the you know, decision-making capacity and ability to provide consent. So in our events, I would say, again, the most concerning ones to me were ones in which someone was concerned, a family member or a staff member, and they stopped the line and said, whoa, you know, is this really the person that should have consented to this? And Pam Tripaldi, uh, who we mentioned her name several times, brought this to your attention, asked the mm-hmm. question. Uh, she gave an example that uh, her father was asked whether he had diabetes. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, Pam was just within earshot. And uh, he, the, the, her father said, no, he didn't. Mm-hmm. And Pam overheard the conversation and jumped up and said, yes, he does, which is a good example of, um, you know, someone who has been diagnosed with diabetes dementia, not remembering their medical history. Right. And um, in the article, I go on in the discussion um, to talk about the reasons why we missed this. Um, And, you know, her father fits the profile of a person who is very highly educated and highly functioning for most of his life. And especially in those people, it's hard to tell that there's been a cognitive change, especially when you don't know the person. So Pam, obviously, is his daughter. And, and she felt that she knew him better than he knew himself at that point. And um, if a, a staff member is unfamiliar with the patient and hasn't had a chance to touch base with other care providers who know the patient very well, it's, you can see how it would be easy to walk into a patient's room and have no idea that they have dementia and just start having these conversations. Um, so in the example Pam provided, Um, she wasn't sure why that person was asking her dad about the insulin pump. And it turns out that this was a radiology technician who was just thinking ahead and thinking about the procedure he was going to have and thinking, hmm, uh, we we really can't let anyone into, I I think it might have been an MRI machine, could have been anything else, but um, they didn't want any device to show up on the test that they were going to do. So this person, their way of screening for that was just to ask the patient, hey, do you have diabetes? Thinking, oh, I'm going to get to that question about the the insulin pump later if I just start asking him about diabetes. So it could have been just um, that individual's um, idea for a way to screen for these things, a way to have a conversation with a patient. But to Pam, who was standing outside the room within earshot, she's thinking, wait a second, who is that person? And why are they asking my dad that question? And don't, you know, <laughs> so she could see the potential for something seriously wrong to happen if these are the kinds of questions that are being asked all of the time of her father, especially when she's not there. And what if they ask a question that he gives the wrong answer to and it results in something, you know, serious happening to him and harming him. Yeah, that's her concern. Our guest today is Michelle File, a senior patient safety analyst with the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. We're discussing doctors not recognizing dementia patients they're treating. And I should mention that uh, today's program is part of WITF's Transforming Health Project. To learn more, 
plus a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITF's Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and WellSpan Health. I have a quick question for you about uh, Pam. Uh, we've mentioned her name several times throughout the program, Pam Tripaldi from uh, Northampton County. Uh, does the authority often conduct an analysis or an investigation with uh, just one suggestion? Um, well, it's becoming more commonplace, I would say, in the last several years. Um, there are a team of us who are analyzing the events that are reported to us daily, and um, if we notice anything concerning, we might dive deeper and analyze the events just based on what we're seeing come across in the reports. But there have been some occasions in the past few years where um, someone has contacted the authority either through our patient safety liaisons, and those are the members of our team who visit all the hospitals in our state and the, um, the ambulatory surgical facilities, et cetera, um, or they might contact a member of our board of directors um, who meet monthly in Harrisburg. Um, we've had individuals come to our um, public meetings that are held once a month uh, just outside Harrisburg, um, so through various means, we've had individuals contact us. It isn't very often, but in this case, um, you know, Pam, I believe, contacted a member of our board, and, you know, enough of us at the authority thought that this was concerning enough to go into our reports and see and kind of search for stories that matched to see if it was a widespread concern or if this was just something isolated. Um, and, you know, we found enough examples of events that were similar that we thought it was worth talking about in our recent analysis. Mm -hmm. So how does it happen? The um, events such as similar to what happened with Pam's yes. father? How is it that uh, uh, doctors or uh, nurses, anyone in a, in a healthcare care uh, setting, uh, do not uh, identify patients with dementia? Well, I think you can imagine probably if you have friends or family members that have been affected by any kind of uh, dementia, cognitive impairment, uh, dementia has a very insidious, slow onset over many years. And um, if the person is healthy and they're at home and they're in a familiar environment, you may not notice the signs of dementia for a very long time. Um, it, it's when that person has deficits in the area of memory and language and communication and then finally isn't able to conduct what we call the activities of daily living independently. And that would be things like managing your medications or balancing your checkbook. When that person has these cognitive deficits and then is unable to carry out these functions by themselves without assistance, that's when they meet the criteria for a definition of um, dementia. So if... Uh, healthcare providers are not screening for cognitive impairment when the patient comes to their office or when they're admitted to the hospital, they can miss it. And like I said earlier, if somebody is highly educated, you know, working professional most of their lives, has been relatively healthy and functional in their home environment, um, they can come in and they can totally, you know, fool you. So unless you're looking for it and using a screening tool, you are going to miss it. Anyone would miss it. And um, a lot of times patients and their family members themselves are surprised when a patient is screened and found to have um, dementia or some form of cognitive impairment. And, again, it's when they're out of their familiar environment. They're usually in the hospital for some other health, you know, reason. 
Um, and the diagnosis can come as a shock even to the patient and their family members. In your analysis, you have a heading called five categories. Explain the five categories. Well, um, I mentioned that we searched our database to see if we could find events similar to what Pam described. Um, so we were trying to find events where there was a patient who had dementia or probably had dementia who was in our hospitals, any hospital in Pennsylvania, and um, the event narrative described a situation where that diagnosis was missed or, or missed by any member of the team. So we looked for themes in what was happening in those 63 events. And what we found was beginning, if you think of an episode of care from the time the patient is admitted to the hospital until the time the patient is discharged, we try to put these events in order. So the, the first event in the theme would be a failure to recognize pre-existing dementia. So someone has dementia, they come to your hospital or they come to your office and a screening isn't done and right there there's a failure to recognize the patient even has dementia to begin with. And then the second failure mode occurs when, okay, you know the patient has dementia but you have failed to assess their competence and their decision-making ability. As I said earlier, just because a patient has dementia, especially in the early stages, it doesn't mean they can't make decisions. So somebody has to formally assess, you know, what is their capacity to understand their medical information and to make choices. You know, our, how much can we rely on this person to make decisions about their own care? So, so our events showed there was a failure to do that, to stop and assess the patient. Then the third failure mode occurred when we knew the patient had dementia and we knew they couldn't make decisions for themselves but the team failed to identify someone else who can make that decision for them or who could provide reliable information. So this person's here. We know they have a problem. We're not trusting the information. You have to take the next step and identify somebody. You know, it might not be a family member. It could be a friend. It has to be somebody who knows the person well and then take the next step and try to formalize um, some kind of an agreement, especially if they don't have a living will or an advanced directive that, tells you which person makes decisions for them, that process has got to be addressed. So there's a failure to do that, a failure to find that person who can give you reliable information or can, who can make decisions if necessary for the patient. And then the last failure mode is, um, actually, I'm sorry, it's a fourth failure mode, not the last. The fourth of these five is, okay, we, we know all this. We know they have dementia. We don't trust their information. We have identified somebody who is a reliable historian or who can make decisions, but then they're in the hospital, decision needs to be made or information needs to be gathered and the person isn't contacted. So that would be the examples I was sharing with you earlier where, you know, they know the patient has issues, but they've gone ahead and obtained consent and started to send them down for some kind of a procedure and someone stops the line and says, whoa, wait a minute, this person has someone else we were supposed to contact um, and, and they failed to do that. And then the last failure mode would be, you know, all of this has been done. We know they have dementia. We know who the decision maker is, et cetera. But that isn't communicated to every member of the team. And you can see how that happens really easily today in hospitals when um, there's not one physician or one nurse who cares for the patient over a long period of time consistently who really knows the patient well. If you have different physicians and different members of the team and different nurses working different shifts and you don't have continuity in the people providing care, 
you can see how this message of, okay, this is the person's cognitive ability, this is, these are the decisions they can make for themselves, these are the decisions they can't make, this is who you need to contact, you can see how that information can get lost between care providers. Um, so that's the failure to communicate all this information to every member of the team. Mm. Doesn't today, today's technology help to avoid these kind of mistakes? Yes, it should. Um, and in many hospitals with electronic health records, they have developed systems where there's one um, smart board, usually, some kind of a video display up at a centralized station on the unit that will flag patients for various reasons. So you might have a flag if the patient's at risk to fall or some kind of flag if the patient is um, on isolation precautions or, you know, there's flags for various things. So um, beyond the electronic healthcare system, there's the old-fashioned system of just using signs and wristbands, which I know is something that Pam had talked to me about, the wristbands. We use these things to communicate risk for various things in the hospital. Um, but back to the electronic healthcare record, there, there's quite a lot of information right now, and you can imagine that there's flags for um, medications that create a high risk for adverse events. There's um, alerts that come to the providers for, you know, allergies and caution in using certain medications. Um, there. There is also a phenomenon called alert fatigue right now. So we recognize that just by creating more alerts, we may not solve the problem because right now there's so many alerts and flags flashing from these electronic healthcare records that sometimes that can be a problem in and of itself. So we do need to be creative in finding a solution to this and making sure that information gets communicated and that no one just misses it. Well, I wanted to transition to the discussion about wristbands because, as you said, uh, Pam Tripaldi, that was her suggestion. And, uh, you know, people associate uh, Alzheimer's disease with the, the color purple. So she had suggested wristbands that, that were purple. But as you have just kind of mentioned, you're not exactly sold on that idea. Why not? Well, in Pennsylvania, you asked earlier if um, sometimes the authority may even investigate um, or see if we're having problems based on the report of one single event. Well, it just so happens that early in the history of the authority, there was one single event that happened with a wristband that really um, could have had disastrous results, and that was um, a nurse working in one hospital who worked in several hospitals was working one day and misunderstood the color of a patient's wristband. Now, I don't remember every detail of this story, but I, you know, I believe the color um, meant do not resuscitate in one of her hospitals, and it meant something like a medication allergy in the other hospital. So by misunderstanding that color, the nurse believed the patient was a do not resuscitate patient. So if that patient had a cardiac arrest, that person wouldn't have been resuscitated, and that would have been you know, a huge error. So based on that alone, the authorities started to look at colored wristbands used in all of our hospitals across the state, and we found that there were so many wristbands being used in so many different colors. Um, so the authorities' recommendation was that hospitals should standardize that between hospitals and really limit the number of bracelets being used. Now, another suggestion, and actually it's been used in some other places, was to put a sticker on the admission wristband as when the patient comes in, rather than a fully colored wristband, just a, a little circle, round sticker that goes on it. What about that? 
Well, that is an idea that started with Gary LeBlanc. He is an individual down in Florida. I'm sorry, I just need to push my phone here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Gary LeBlanc is um, a journalist down in Florida whose uh, father, I believe, had dementia. And just like Pam, he was an advocate who was out there talking about his concerns as a caregiver. And um, he developed this program called the Dementia Wristband Project. And uh, he started in the hospital down there in Florida where his father had been a patient. And uh, he worked with the staff and also with emergency first responders and you know, emergency fire personnel in the area so that all of them and the local Alzheimer's chapter down there and said, you know, this is a problem. We need to make sure everyone knows how to screen for dementia and everyone knows how to care for these patients to keep them safe in the hospital. So together with all those other team members, they went through a variety of um, ideas for how to bring awareness to the issue and identify these patients in the hospital. So he, too, wanted to start with a purple wristband, but after, you know, talking to this large group of people, they decided that, again, that would be confused with do not resuscitate because this um, idea of standardizing wristband colors uh, that started in Pennsylvania has gone nationwide. So there are many groups across this nation that have... um, suggest that hospitals standardize these colors anyway. So he wanted to avoid the use of the purple wristband as well, and he found this purple angel symbol that was being used over in the U.K. It wasn't being used in hospitals, but it was being used uh, in the community to designate businesses that were um, dementia-friendly. Um, there, was, there was a man over in the U.K. who had an early diagnosis of dementia, and he worked with organizations in his community to, to bring awareness to dementia and to make sure there were businesses who knew how to interact appropriately with these people with dementia. For instance, he wouldn't want um, you know, businesses to take advantage of these people with cognitive impairment. So anyway, he started using the Purple Angel logo to designate businesses in the U.K. that were friendly, you know, safe for dementia patients and patients with other forms of cognitive impairment. So Gary in Florida said you know, how about this Purple Angel logo? Let's start using that. So um, at the hospital in Florida where his dad had been a patient, they started putting that sticker on the wristband of patients who screened positive for cognitive impairment. So uh, it's not just because of the sticker. I talked to one of the nursing directors at that hospital to ask her. She thought the sticker on the wristband is the thing that really improved care for their patients. She said, no, it's, it's education, it's raising awareness, it's the fact that every single patient age 65 and older gets screened for cognitive impairment when they come to the hospital. Well, and, and yes, they do get that sticker, but it, it's a whole process. Well, you probably just, uh, I think we can end our conversation on what you just mentioned because that kind of sounds like uh, the solution or at least one of the solutions here. Michelle File is the Senior Patient Safety Analyst with the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. Ms. File, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. And Michelle File, thank you very much again for for being with us today. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we continue our conversations with the Democratic candidates for the U.S. Senate. Tomorrow, it is Joe Sestak who will be appearing on the program. Also, uh, the second half of the program, we're going to be talking about... Uh, politics, but uh, has to do with uh, female candidates, women candidates. Pennsylvania has a low representation of women in elected offices. We'll want to talk about why and what can be done about it. That's coming up on tomorrow's program.